Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, You know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagram use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O.com. This is the Secret Library Podcast, and I can't believe it, but we are at season nine. My guest this week is Huma Qureshi. Huma is the author of Things We Do Not Tell the People We Love and How We Met, A Memoir of Love and Other Misadventures. Both were published to critical acclaim in 2021. Her first book, In Spite of Oceans, received the John C. Lawrence Award from the Authors Foundation in 2015. In 2022, How We Met was shortlisted in the Books Are My Bag Indie Book Awards, while Things We Do Not Tell the People We Love was longlisted for both the Jalik Prize Book of the Year and the Edge Hill Prize for Excellence in a single-authored short story collection. Huma's fourth book and debut novel will be published with Scepter this month, November 2023. I want to include the next part of Huma's bio that's written in her own words, because I think it's so important that we all take this in. It feels quite surreal to list these achievements because it took me years to build the confidence I needed to believe in my writing. Although I spent many years working as a staff journalist for The Guardian, Observer, and a freelance writer for other well-known publications, it wasn't until I found the courage to start entering short story prizes that I began to realize my creative writing meant something after all. My words resonated. They moved people. I finally saw their value. In 2020, I won the Harper's Bazaar Short Story Prize. Suddenly, all sorts of doors that had previously been closed to me began to open up. I love that she has shared this story or this sentiment as part of her bio. And as you will see in our conversation, Huma is incredibly open and generous with her emotional experience and what it's like on the other side of the book, the part where we have to work hard and where, as she puts it, it takes something out of us to tell a story. But at the same time, these doors that she describes do open up when we begin to share our work. So 
This is a, a wonderful conversation to include in this season, because not only is this Emma's experience of publishing a debut novel, having published other forms of books before, but it also explores the experience of visibility and being published for one of her characters, who is also a writer. And we will dive into this quite deeply in this episode. I'm delighted that this one is out. I have been excited to share it. So it's my joy to introduce Homa Qureshi. Hey, Homa, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always such a treat to read a novel that has a main character who is a writer. I just, I just feel so validated in reading, playing games and going through Mira's experience of writing, even though she's a playwright rather than a novelist. I, I have, to, I, I just want to start with this because we're all writers here listening and speaking. How was it to write about Mira's struggles? Was it cathartic? Was it, was it challenging? Because we've got a character who's applying for an award is That's counting fine. down the days until it comes and she has varying periods of stuckness and flow. Absolutely. Um, and it felt really, what I wanted to do was write about it in a way, write about writing in a way that felt real, that felt emotional and tangible at the same time. Um, and <laughs> I guess it's perhaps not a secret that a lot of it was happening in real time. <laughs> <laughs> As well, because I was also writing to a deadline. I had this book already contracted. I had a certain very limited period of time in which to write it. And it mattered to me that Mira was a writer. She needed to be creative for the purpose of her character. But I very deliberately made her a playwright. And not. I think at the very beginning, she was a short story writer, but it felt very too close to home. And also for various reasons, I needed her story. I'm going to try and talk spoiler free, but I needed her play like the piece that she writes I needed it to be witnessed I needed this play to come to life so it made it became clearer that no she had to be a playwright which is also a very different kind of writing to novel writing and I spent a lot of fun I had a lot of fun reading plays and also going to watch plays by myself to kind of think in the way that a playwriter would think because I think it is quite different to oh, yeah. when you're just in terms of backstory and setting the scene and, and the limited space that you have which is very literally translated onto what's happening in stage in front of you so so that in that respect it was quite different and I had a lot of fun like I said reading plays learning about little things like stage directions and just how paired back uh, descriptions can be and things like that but on the other hand, the actual process of her writing, the feeling that came over her, the feeling of stuckness, that all felt very real. And I wanted it to feel real because I think sometimes we just see the finished product and we don't really know what it's taken of us. And we talk about it on podcasts and interviews and so on. But it's not in the book itself, the kind of heartbreak that you go through to put a story down on page. Like that's very rarely. I mean, yes, there are books about writers and, you know, often literary fiction as well. You'll have writers as your main characters or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a very writerly thing to a certain extent. 
but I don't know that there's all that much about the process and, and what it takes out of you and just how this mattered to her so much. Like there's no other way of her, there's nothing else she could possibly consider doing but being a writer. Um, and so, yes, some of it was quite genuinely happening in real time, like the kind of panic, the despair, the urgency as well that comes over her. And then later, as this play comes together, there's a scene um, closer towards the end of the book where her, her work is coming together and she's in the flow. And I really wanted to describe what that feels like because it is a really magical process to be in the flow. And um, for some of this book, I started writing this book in one of the many lockdowns that we had. And at the time, my kids were at home being homeschooled and I would have this pocket of time to log on to the London Writers Salon who do a writing hour. And every every morning they would end that with saying, like, if you're in the flow, stay in the flow. And for a while, that used to feel very unusual to me because it's like, what's like the flow? Like, mm, I don't know if I felt that. And I know I had felt it because I'd written three books previously and I, I, I knew what it was, but I couldn't put it in words. But I And I really wanted to find a way to put it in words. So towards the end of the novel, Mira is in the flow. She's writing and it's all coming together. And I wanted a way to make that feel real. So what I did was I actually filmed myself writing and I just set it up but I completely kind of forgot about it I just had my phone there and I completely forgot that I had it and I had it on the time lapse um oh it was on like for pretty much for, for hours and I was in the flow because I would I'd got to this point where I knew exactly what was going to happen and I was writing writing and this was post lockdown this was last summer when I was like really just pushing, pushing, and 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 everything was coming together. Um, and it really fascinated me watching it back. Firstly, it was kind of self-conscious watching it back, but at the same time, it didn't feel self-conscious pressing record because I didn't really think about it once I pressed record. It was just like it wasn't right in my face or anything. But it was really curious to me the kind of things that I did when I'm in this flow of writing because I would see my lips moving. So I read back to myself or I'm whispering the words back to myself or I'm touching my lips or I'm playing with my hair, but I look really serious and kind of sad at the same time. So that was really <laughs> interesting because it was like, that's what it's like to be in the flow. Like you're completely this wave of concentration. Like I look so lost in what I'm doing. And so I used that to kind of help me describe the physical elements of what it's like to write to bring it to life like to show that you are you kind of like a wave comes over you and you're sort of underwater temporarily and you can see it you can see it on the look of my face as I'm writing and then there's this moment where I look up and it's like I kind of clock that the camera's there and and that's it you're emerging out of water so yeah elements of that as well I really wanted to capture and and bring to life like what what does writing actually look like because it's so romanticized isn't it and, and oh, yeah yeah so I wanted to capture a lot of that as well I love this way of doing it because I think that when we're in flow either as writers or as readers the problem is is that we don't pay attention to it that's what flow is is not paying attention to the process so that's such a brilliant way to capture it 
<laughs> well, it's lucky that it worked on that day because it was every chance that I might have been just as stuck, you know, as me. <laughs> and I'd have just been like, what am I doing? But I was I was in a good place with the with the flow of events. So yeah, it works. <laughs> smart, smart timing. <laughs> so it's not just Mira's book though, it's Hannah's book as well. And I had this thought. So there are two sisters for those listening who are quite different people. And I just had this, this idea as I was reading, which made me really happy, which is almost that if we, if we step back from them as sisters, I almost saw it as Mira is the creative and Hannah is almost like her critic, but, but because we get to see Hannah as a point of view character, it was almost like reading the critic's biography and how much she cared, but wasn't able to su- express Thanks. it in a way that Mira could feel. And I just found it tremendously healing to read it that way. That's so lovely to hear. And it's true. Like she is, we talk a lot about the voice in our head. And in Mira's case, the voice in her head really is her sister. Like she hears her sister's tone of a voice and her very particular way of saying things that comes back to almost mock her when she's desperate for her for things to go her way. Um, so every time she doubts herself, she thinks of her sister. She thinks that her sister's right. She's proved her sister right. Her sister was right all along. Um, but at the same time, it is you're absolutely right that there's there's a there's a block for Hannah that she just can't say. Like it's really hard for her to show. Um, compassion and it's not because she's not a compassionate person it's because she has her own vulnerabilities and I suppose yeah that kind of puts that critic voice in a slightly more compassionate way to look at them as well like there's all sorts of things that that Hannah can't yet quite deal with and she has to go on her own journey um and she's more vulnerable than you think she is at the very beginning of the book and and I think she goes on her own journey to find that ability to be softer and kinder as well. I was curious about the decision to have them both be point of view characters, because I can see a version of the book in which it is Mira's book and her Mm -hmm. sister is a significant character, but we would lose so much of the things that Hannah isn't capable of saying herself that we have to hear when we're with her and in her point of view. Did you always know it was going to be both of them as point of view characters? I kind of did because I was aware that there can be a bit of a trope about sisters, right? So you have the wild sister and then the very sensible sister. And I I needed this to be uh, deeper than that in order for it to work, in my mind at least, which was why I knew that it's it's both of their stories and they're both the protagonists here for me. Like it felt quite equally balanced to the point that even when I was in the um, final sort of structural edits, I broke down all the chapters to make sure that Hannah and Mira have the same amount of um, point of view, basically, that there's enough on Hannah, there's enough on Mira. And it felt like, if, just like you said, like if we didn't have Hannah's point of view, I think the risk would have been um, that she might have been too one-dimensional and she might have just been that sensible sister and we wouldn't really have understood what was going on with her. And I wanted her, like I needed Hannah to be vulnerable and I needed to show that in order for us as readers to hopefully 
change our minds about her like that was quite important to me as well so that in the beginning I think yeah you do think you know who she is and you kind of get an idea of what kind of character she might be but I wanted to show that actually we don't know who she is and and there's a layer of pretense I mean they are all playing games as the title suggests they're all playing games with each other and with themselves like not necessarily admitting who they really are or what they really hope for or what really matters to them what they're scared of like these are all things that are quite hard for all of them to admit um and all of us I think sometimes we all go through that and we convince ourselves that we're stronger than we are and and a lot of that we see in Hannah um so yeah I think you're absolutely right that without Hannah's point of view, it would have possibly been a different story. But I also wonder that it might have been a less tender story. And from the onset, it really mattered to me that there was a tenderness between them as well. So it wasn't just this kind of polar opposites. Um, and there was some depth and complications and nuances and all the kind of really messy stuff that happens in life. Because we're not just one kind of person. Um, so I like to show my characters as kind of complicated. <laughs> yes, I think it makes it more, more satisfying in the end that we, we, we can buy into how real they are because they're not, they're not always what we expect. Hmm. One of the things also that really excited me about this is that as we're, we're thinking about publication and being published this year and and one of the goals that Mira has is for her play, of course, to be produced. And she's been hoping for this for much of her life. Mm. But from what I understand from the story, this hasn't really happened, at least not in a real way. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the theme that is the ultimate, I think, I don't know if it's a taboo, but it's something that every writer maybe struggles with or toys with is the idea of how much of the stories of those around me or how much of real life am I allowed to include in my work? And what are the consequences of doing this? Mm -hmm. So we do think about this and you hear people talking about it, especially memoirists, but I loved that this was a, a point of tension and um, suspense almost in this book. So I'm wondering how it was to develop that. Is this a thread that you've wondered about in your own life, having written memoir as well? And, and I'm just wondering about that theme and, and how it feels. So the, the idea of kind of what can you borrow from real life and what can you write about? I've always been kind of interested in where that line lies, but where it really kind of started to grab a hold of me to the point that I was like no I really want to explore this was when my third book came out which is my collection of short stories came out and it really surprised me the number of people who would message me and ask me if I was okay if everything was okay in my life in my marriage with my mother because the my stories were it's called things we do not tell the people we love and it's about the secrets in relationships and um the way that we can hurt the people that we're closest to and there's a lot of dark mother and daughter themes there's a lot of um kind of off kilter relationships marriages lovers where things are just not working and I mean I've also written a memoir which is a very kind of happy memoir in a way so I would point them to that and I'd say that everything is fine guys everything's 
fine. And, you know, I'm very happily married. I have a good relationship with my mother, you know, no more or less different to anyone else. Um, and there's a couple of stories in that collection, which, like I said, they are quite dark. There's the daughters who try to kill their mothers. There's unfortunate accidents. So, you know, it's quite dark literary fiction. And um, it surprised me how many people genuinely thought that this must have been something that I had lived through and maybe I had hidden it in my memoir and not talked about it and it also surprised me that out of all the press reviews and I was you know very lucky I had a, a, a great response to the collection and it was um you know up for some really good awards and things like that it was great but the two <laughs> there were two men who reviewed the collection and a lot of women who had reviewed it as well and ordinarily I wouldn't notice this but it, it I realized that the two male reviewers had both written in their reviews that these were stories that were obviously inspired by the author's life and I thought that was so interesting that they automatically made this assumption that because I was writing about mothers and daughters and lovers and you know what is typically seen as as domestic that it was in some way therefore not imagined and I just I just found that an incredibly interesting thing to sit and think about it's like well why why would you make that assumption why could I not have just imagined this why like why why was that beyond the realm of my possibility like I have never tried to poison my mother with jam as one of my characters <laughs> but you seem to think that I have like and and I wanted to explore that and I think um a couple of years earlier it might have been like 2019 or possibly just before that I can't quite remember the date but there was a big story a big publishing story that went viral about in the New York Times about the bad art friend. I don't know if you remember that, but it was. Oh, yes. And it kind of became a bit of, you know, a lot of people were starting to make fun of the two people involved, um, basically involved. I think from memory, it was two people in a writing group. Yes. And one of them was just posting about her life and possibly her health or something to do with her kidney on Facebook. Yeah. Other one lifted. Personal details anyway. Personal details. And the other author um, just kind of lifted it for inspiration. Um, Is that wrong? Is it right? It's just a seed of inspiration. So I just find the question just really interesting. Like, is it okay? Is it not okay? When is it okay? Why do people assume that it is real life when it isn't? And when it is real life, does that somehow make it less than? And these are all questions that I think are, to a certain extent, unanswerable because it's all subjective. It's all what's okay. Um, and so I really wanted to play with it. I just thought this is so fun in a way to, to observe and look at and bring to the fore in a way that um, maybe I hadn't seen before. Like I, I wanted to just do something with it it seemed for me sometimes what happens is when I'm coming up with an idea well there, there'll always be something I can't stop thinking about and it might not necessarily if I was sat there kind of coming up with an idea for this novel be like right I'm writing about sisters where does this come into it like this whole idea of borrowing from reality to write about but they were two things that I just could not let go of because I really love exploring intimate, close relationships. I love pulling them apart and seeing if they can come back together again or not, or, you know, testing them, testing them out. And I love 
I mean, everything I've written has always been about putting a relationship under a lens and putting it under an awful lot of tension and pressure just to see what might happen. I find it fascinating. But on the other hand, I was also really obsessed by this other idea about, well, isn't it funny how people always think that you're writing from real life when really you might not be? But what if you were? And then what would happen? And and what if it's not your life? And so all these kind of what if questions were just unraveling in my mind. And knowing that I was going to write about two sisters, knowing that they were going to start off being very different, knowing that one would be creative, it kind of all then slowly started to piece together as to how that might happen. And I think the really fun thing about sisters is there's always that joke about borrowing things without asking. So you borrow your right. without asking borrow favorite pair of earrings and I kind of wanted to play with that as well like what can you borrow without asking and how far can you go with that so in this case without any spoilers it's about borrowing something private from your sister borrowing something that belongs to her in a very (laughs) in a very emotional way rather than borrowing something from her wardrobe um but the fallout is perhaps just as complicated yeah, there was it, that line was somewhat chilling. I think earlier, I'm not going to make noise flipping through the book here, but early on when Mira overhears a conversation, when we're with Hannah and we hear her side of the conversation, just I think it might be the last line of that chapter. She realized the door was open. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, the door was open. There's just something about that line, but it is. Um, <laughs> Yes, I love that bit about borrowing things that, that, you know, without asking, because there is a scene when, when Mira moves from a very undesirable living situation, and Hannah helps her move and finds a number of other things that she had borrowed without asking, like the perfume and (laughs) other items. So that was quite funny to reference that directly. I hadn't thought of that connection until now, but I love that. (laughs) Thank you. I had a lot of fun playing that, playing with all of that. Like it, it really did feel to me that I was also playing a game with these two characters. So yeah, it was it was really fun in a way to watch it unfold, which I mean, I know that sounds like the wrong word because also people got hurt in the book and, you know, both Hannah and Mira go through very, uh, very complicated um, issues and they feel very deeply but at the same time, as a writer, I think that's just that's just great to have fun with. Like you can push them, you you can you can go as far, you can go further than you think you might be able to, and then sort of step back and see what could be realistic and what isn't realistic, and what's believable, and how far do I want to take it? Um, and I think that is that is a game. It's it's a game, right? Writing is is like that. So yeah, I did have fun hurting them and. <laughs> then putting them back together again <laughs> makes me terribly callous but I love them dearly as well <laughs> but the thing is this is the bit that I'm I'm so irritated at these reviewers I'm like over here seething as we're talking about them saying it's obviously from your life but I wonder if it's this point that people don't like maybe men don't like to imagine women playing with their characters emotions and that 
that maybe it's okay if women writers witness an experience and then we have to deal with our delicate feelings by putting it into fiction to tolerate it. But what if we're just having fun, putting them in horrible situations and seeing what might happen? Why isn't it okay for us to do that? Because I agree, that's necessary. And it's something that we do as writers. Yeah. And I think like, you know, we've just talked about the flow at the beginning and what it feels like to be in the the flow and how sometimes there is a sense of some kind of otherworldliness when that happens and things take over and things happen on the page. But ultimately, yes, that can happen. But really, as the writer, you're the one in control. And I find that really, really empowering, like quietly so, but still empowering. Like, you get to write the ending that you want and you get to write the story that you want and you get to write the characters that you want. And I think that's just amazing, really. Like who else gets to do that? When I was writing my memoir, I attended this writing workshop with the Irish writer, Emily Pine. She Hmm. wrote uh, Notes to Self. And, And I remember one of the things she said was the most empowering thing that you can do for yourself as a writer I think it just so happened that we were all women in the room, but she said that the most empowering empowering thing she could do for herself was to write an ending that mattered, write the ending that she wanted for herself. Now, obviously she was writing nonfiction and her essays in that book are incredibly personal, but she wrote on the note that she wanted to end on. She wrote the ending that she deserved. And I think that's true of whether you're writing nonfiction or fiction, you know, like you write the ending that, that you choose, that you demand, that your characters demand, but that you gave to them as well. I think that is really, really quite empowering, which is why like writing my ending, I always knew that I was going to a place of tenderness. And that was really important because that felt quite empowering as well. I think it's, yeah, I think that when we have two characters, we have a situation because they had, how to say this without flapping around. Um, They both dealt with similar issues throughout the book in terms of how can I do work that's meaningful to me, grappling with the grief that the loss of their mother, which happens before the beginning of the story, you know, what kind of relationship do I want? What's okay for me in a relationship and what isn't? These themes come up for both of them and yet we get to see them struggle with it in different ways. And longing as well. Like both of them are longing in very different ways for a vision of a life that they haven't quite yet found. Um, And I think they both feel like that is out of their control, like talking about that feeling of being empowered. They both feel like they are not in control of their lives and then the hope is is that they will realize that what they think they want they can still find but it doesn't have to be the way that they expect it would happen um I'm trying to talk really carefully so as to not (laughs) it's so hard I think it is exactly what you're talking about that they they both they they both want things. They seem like they're very different things, but fundamentally, they're not. They're a search for belonging, whether that is belonging in art and work and creativity for Mira, or belonging in another way for Hannah. Um, yeah, it, it's they're they're more similar than you think, actually. So I'm curious about how it feels to have this book 
come out? Is it different than it was for your other books? Or because there's this this point when, you know, there's a boundary you're crossing over. It's like when you're in the flow as you were on your camera inside the world with your characters, then there's a point when everyone else can see them. And I'm curious about how that feels at this point. Um, so at the point that we're talking, I think we have, I have three weeks until publication. Um, if I'm honest, I feel more anxious than mm. excited. And I think this is the feeling that I recognized from all my previous books. Um, it's funny because you'll meet people who will sort of know that the book is coming out and they'll be very excited on my behalf, but they will be like, oh my God, that's so exciting. You must be so excited. And it's like, actually, I think excited is the wrong word. Like, obviously I'm really proud of what I've created. I loved working on this book. It took a lot out of me writing this book as well. I'm deeply protective of it. I'm protective of myself. It can feel quite exposing. I mean, I started my writing career as a journalist, but all I really wanted to do was write books. But it's taken me until my fourth book to write my first novel. And I guess, I guess in a way as well, there's a part of me that's not ashamed of that because I am proud of the books that I've written, but I do sort of look back and I wonder why did it take so long? And is that going to reflect on me in some way? Um so there's all these other kind of complicated feelings about myself that are wrapped up in the book, which are not to do with the storyline, but more to do with, I guess, my sense of self um, and self-worth. And I think also the more I have, you know, I am very lucky to have published books before, but that this feeling doesn't ever go away. And if anything, I think I feel it more pronounced now because it's my first novel because I have wanted this for so long and um because I don't want because I care about it so much as well you know like so it is quite exposing at the moment it feels like I'm in this kind of slightly vulnerable slightly anxious state where I almost want to put a distance between myself and the book, not because I don't want to think about it or because I've spent too long on it. It's not that. It's almost like, you know, when you um, don't want to get hurt in a relationship, that kind of feeling that Mm -hmm. I don't want to let myself because I don't want to be hurt. And I feel Mm. at the moment. So it's crazily complex. I'm aware of how nuts that might make me sound but maybe it also just makes me sound human I don't know but I feel it much more with this book and I think it is because it's it feels like a finally it's the book that I wanted to write it's the novel that I'd wanted to write and I think every other book was getting me closer to this point and for various reasons like you know having children and career and all of that like it's taken me I'm in my early 40s now like I didn't write my first novel in my 20s like often so many people do and I think that is amazing that they do but just happened a little bit later for me and I just don't want that to reflect poorly on me like I don't want people to make assumptions or judgments or things like that so yeah I I think it feels personal (laughs) at this moment because it still hasn't gone out into the world and and I don't know yet what might happen when it does. And I just, I care about it and I want it to do well. So yeah, these are all feelings that I think 
I just have to accept as well. Like I've learned that in my process that that self-doubt or that knot of anxiety isn't necessarily just going to go away just because you've published X number of books. I think that fear is always going to be there as well, but maybe that's what drives us. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but yeah. I think it might be. I mean, it it always fascinates me. There are a number of things in you said in what you said that resonate hugely. And one is that why why are we as a culture so prone to like load a, an anvil of pressure on the novel? You know, it's like it's like I I know so many people who've said things to me. Oh, I, yes, I write, but oh, I don't write novels or something like that. Like there's some sort of completely different thing at stake, and in some ways, it is really different. I mean, I write fiction and nonfiction. I I feel the difference very clearly. And yet, why do we have this value mm. of like you have to sing with the angels or something to be yeah. permitted to write a novel? And so, and I feel that pressure in in what you're saying. Yeah, and also it might be interesting for any of your listeners who are writing as well. I. Wrote short, I mean, short stories was my first kind of fiction form. It's in a way almost my first love. I love the craft. I love the form. Um, but I was published for my short stories with the expectation that I would then publish a novel. So it is almost like you have to prove yourself that, yes, this is great. You can write these short stories, but can you write something more? And I think that is a certain expectation. And I, I don't quite know why we do it, because being very specific here to short story form and like short form and, and long form to me you can't compare the two they're like no. it's like comparing poetry to filmmaking like oh well if you can write a poem can you make this film if you can write <laughs> exactly and it's you're right the novel is upheld as a kind of masterpiece that well can you do that because you're a proper writer yet because you <laughs> so it, I find that really curious because to me, like every form is its own art form. Like it's so very different. And I don't know that you would expect of a poet to say, well, I'll give you a two big deal, but can you make sure the second one is a novel? Almost like, can you do, can you do more? Can you do better? Yeah. I find that interesting, but also I guess, you know, I say that with absolutely no disrespect. I love my publishers and my editors, I can understand why from the business business point of, of view. Of course, yeah. But from a writing point of view, there's a lot of pressure, I think, to kind of prove yourself in a different form. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I just find it fascinating. So with this in mind, the fact that we we put so much pressure and have so much expectation for novels that we also expect people to be able to do it out of the gate and that we worry, like nobody, nobody wants, I think it was V.E. Schwab who said this um, in an early interview on the show, and I've never forgotten it. Like, we don't want like a debut surgeon. We would never want a debut surgeon. <laughs> or like Hannah, Hannah who's a, a very skilled lawyer. We don't want the brand new lawyer. Like, let's see if you can argue this case. But yet we always want the sort of baby novelist 
almost like we want a Mozart or some sort of virtuoso who's just come at it out of nowhere. And I, I am always thrilled for novelists to come who are starting to publish at 40 or later, of mm-hmm. which there are many, because I feel like then there is time to, yeah. to really infuse it. But then there is also pressure because you've been waiting longer to put it out. Yeah. But I just, I always have a, a big cheer for the 40 plus novelist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, me too. And I do think without sounding too, I don't know, smug in my <laughs> my early 40s age, I don't think that I could have written this book or necessarily any of them any sooner because so much of writing isn't what happens at your desk. And a lot of it is just life, right? And I know we've talked about the line between putting your life or real things into fiction, but I think the emotion, regardless of what the plot is, you can imagine any plot. It can be a thriller. It can be science fiction. It can be absolutely removed from your real life. But I think there is a certain degree of truth in the emotion that goes into the story because that's how you connect for at least for me that's how I connect the story to the person that's reading it's because it has to feel real like I want my characters to feel real I have to give them depth I have to give them a real emotional state of mind and um I feel that that emotional truth maybe I don't know maybe that's collected over the years maybe that all those feelings that you navigate they 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 don't just sort of stop in your early 20s. If anything, they grow more profound in the sense that life becomes more complicated or fuller or richer in many different ways, or there are demands on your time and you feel other sorts of feelings about that. And I don't know, I think emotions, I am all for putting that into your into your work because that's the heart of it and that's what makes it true and believable and all the things that I want people to feel from the story. So yeah, I feel like these books couldn't have been written any earlier because I don't know that I would have known what it was to feel such panic or despair or urgency or franticness. Like I think my life was much simpler when I was younger, actually. So I don't know that that would have come out on the page but at the same time I don't want that to sound dismissive of the younger writers who do do that I think that's amazing I think I think that is amazing um but I also think and I teach writing as well and I tell my students as well like I also think it happens when it happens for you like we don't need to be in that rush and I think though there are many things that I haven't quite come to terms with with writing with my self-doubt and things like that I think that is something that I have come to terms with like it's happened when it should have happened. I would not have been prepared. I would not have known how to navigate publishing, um, the publishing world or having your book reviewed and things like that. I don't think I would have had the strength for it when I was younger. So yeah, I think it happens when it happens for you. And and everyone, I think, whoever feels that, oh my God, why is it taking me so long? Sense of despair just needs to remember that somehow. Yeah, Mm. I think so. There's like a, I'm having all of these horrible metaphors run through my head that are hideous yet somehow (laughs) work for me of like, 
you know, like a cast iron skillet, you know, when you first get it, it's like completely dry. There's nothing in it. It doesn't work very well. And you have to use it for a really long time for it to get seasoned. Mm. Now, far be it for me to want to be a, like a, an infused cast iron skillet, <laughs> but there is a little bit about that emotionally. It's like we come in and we don't necessarily, yes, there is generational emotion that we come into life with. But I think that the variety of situations that we've experienced in our 40s is so much more, there's just so many more of them than in our 20s. And I can think of me in my 20s having certain thoughts like, well, the way it is, is, and just kind of looking back with affection and saying, oh, is it though? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I understand that as well. And and I know I'm just speaking completely for myself, but I think as a as a sort of 20 something, um, yes, I had known something of loss. My father died when I was in my very early 20s, but I don't think I had the perspective to be able to make sense of it in in writing. So I only wrote about it in my memoir, which was, you know, like 10, and I guess it was probably about 16 years later that I was able to finally make sense of what had happened and how it had made me feel and how lost I had felt. And I think sometimes it pays to take that time to just live and sit with it and remember it. And it will come out like the important things the real things, the things that sort of make your writing moving will come to the page because you've already felt that and you carry it in you, you carry these things inside you and it will come to the page. And I, I think that's what gives the writing the depth and the kind of richness that it, it needs sometimes. For sure. I mean, mm. I have never in the history of doing this show had someone say, you know, I wish writing this book took a little bit longer. <laughs> no one has ever said that. And yet, pretty much everyone says what you've said is, I needed the time that it took. And I needed to be ready not only for it to be to a point where it felt finished or as finished as it was going to feel to me, but also to be ready for other people to read it and to react to it. Absolutely. So I want to close with one question, which is maybe what your dream is for playing games and, and whose hands it might land in and how that reader might feel finally getting to hold this novel that you've been dreaming of sharing for such a long time. Um, the, the kind of thing that I tell myself with all my writing, really, and I have continued to remind myself of a lot with playing games is that it just has to mean something to one person. And that's what I always tell myself is that if this story means something to someone, then that's enough, that it moves them, that it brings them joy. I know that right now, at the time that we're talking, a lot of the world is in great turmoil, the situation in the Middle East, a lot of a lot of lives are being broken. And then even far away from that region, people's hearts are breaking. And I feel like if one story or any story doesn't have to be mine, but if something just gives someone a bit of joy in amidst all of that, then then maybe that is something and maybe there is value in that. I think it's very easy when um, 
the world feels much bigger than you and situations feel way more important and real, it's very easy for us as writers to question the value of what we do. But, well, I am not a heart surgeon. I'm not um, not in the army. You know what I mean? Like there's not, there's not, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a nurse. I'm not physically kind of helping someone. But then I think we are actually in a way without trying to make it sound more important than it is without comparing it to very, very, very important jobs. It's just that sense of if I can bring someone joy somewhere, if for three nights they stay up reading my book and they're not doom scrolling on the news, like, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Um, and I don't know if that is too much, like, I don't know if that's too arrogant in a way to, to assume that I might be able to to do that for them, but just to give someone a little bit of joy and a bit of, for it to mean something to them, for them to be moved in a surprising way that they might not have expected. That's all that I hope for with all my writing. Absolutely. I couldn't, oh, but that's, well, I can say that you at least kept me up past my bedtime. (laughs) And I hope that those listening will read it. And I guess the image I had as you were describing this is Yes, we as writers are not the surgeons, the aid workers, the nurses, but what if the surgeons, the aid workers and the nurses read our books and are able to tolerate doing that difficult work because they have a bit of respite and solace? That's so important. That's a really lovely way of of putting it as well. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for writing it and thank you so much for coming on to to talk about this novel. I, it's such a treat and I'm sure we could have gone on all day, but I'm I'm grateful that we had this time. <laughs> thank you so much, Caroline. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads.